We have a lot of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics, whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which maybe is zero, in which case, ouch. But okay, if you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more, more importantly, thank you for listening. From KOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today Matthew Wersner is back to explain the battle over federal student loan forgiveness. Anybody that's gone to college at any point from like 1990 through today either currently has or at some point had a student loan and i think like 90 some percent of us are currently not repaying our student loans Uh, and i i don't know if that's necessarily the best thing in the world but i think there's some indicators in what has happened the last two years and what's happened recently to show that the system is really broken We're discussing the history of student loans, the legality of forgiving them, and the likely outcome of lawsuits against Joe Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student loans. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. A lot of waves have been made in the past decade regarding student loans and the sometimes predatory nature of higher education. It's become a common refrain among Democrats to support varying degrees of student loan relief and forgiveness, especially if it's framed as some kind of economic stimulus. Republicans generally find this kind of targeted debt relief to be something that they are not interested in supporting, largely for financial reasons, or Don Bacon in September lamenting that reducing the debt incurred by young people seeking a degree could be a problem for military recruitment, for example. Eyes now are on President Biden's promise to forgive up to $20,000 in federal student loans, which has been challenged in court by several states, including Nebraska, and will be playing out over the next several months or potentially years. Today, Matthew Wersner is back on the show to give an overview of the student loan program, the attempted relief, and the likely outcome in court. Here is our conversation. Governor Ricketts has called student loan forgiveness a handout to the wealthy. And uh, it kind of surprised me when he said that, when I realized he meant that as a bad thing. Um, You know, like, for example, it wasn't a big deal when his billionaire dad asked for $200 million of taxpayer money for a new Cubs building. But this, you know, this is a step too far. And the implication is people who have federal student loans, they're the wealthy. So I'm going to ask you, why why do the wealthy have so many federal student loans? I Speaking from a place of of not knowing what it's like to be wealthy, I guess I can't say. Oh, yeah. We're not wealthy. We have student (laughs) loans, don't we? Yeah. Uh, I don't know that that it's definitely fair to say that just because you have a degree, you're wealthy. But um, I like the Cubs and I like baseball. So, yeah, I have to tread a little lightly (laughs) with this. Um, you, You know, actually, the the filings in these lawsuits, the state of Nebraska has said some cool things like 
the economy is not well and this is the most economically unfair thing the Biden administration has ever done. And if this is very economically unfair, I'd love to know what fair is. (laughs) Well, okay, so let's let's uh, let's clarify a few things. Who has student loans? I shoot. I think everyone. Right. Well, I mean, anyone who, for whatever reason, either needs a degree for a job or is just kind of in a college culture. I think anyone who does not just have approximately $100,000 of cash lying around has a student loan Um, or anybody that's gone to college at any point from like 1990 through today either currently has or at some point had a student loan. Um, And I think like 90 some percent of us are currently not repaying our student loans. Because there's the pause, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing in the world, but uh, I think there's some indicators in what has happened the last two years and what's happened recently to show that the system is really broken. Well, so, okay, I don't know that much about the history of student loans when they start, but I mean, broadly, it's like any kind of public schooling or public, you know, public infrastructure, right? Which is to say, in theory, we're investing in people's future and what they will bring to society if they have these degrees. Yeah. So... Um, the student loan system as we know it today dates to the, the Higher Education Act of 1965. So in essence, this is a thing that's only been around for 60 years. Um, but that, that act created a lot of the things that we who went to college recently know of as aid, uh, work-study programs, grants, and then student loans. Uh, what I don't think a lot of people really grasp and understand and realize is what what a student loan actually is. And so, in part because for most of us, when you sign the student loan documents, you're a mushy-brained 18-year-old and your parents went to college 30 years ago and they don't know what this is like. And so you don't get really the good financial counseling that you need. But... So for almost everybody who goes to college, you, you fill out a FAFSA, and that FAFSA, you have to fill out your income, your, your household income, what your parents make, and then that determines what type of aid that you qualify for. And one of the forms of aid is a loan from the government um, to go to college. And that loan is no different than if you had come to my office and said, I want to lend money to my neighbor, uh, I would draw up a promissory note for you. And in, the, in these circumstances with student loans, you sign a promissory note that says, I, borrower, agree to repay federal government the $100,000 that it gave me for my student loans at a specific interest rate to be paid over a certain period of time. Uh, those those promissory notes are universal. There there's portions of them that are very standard. There's portions of them that are ne- very non-standard. But ultimately, it's a contract between you and the federal government. And if you get a four-year degree, every four years you've got a new contract. And so you graduate with a bachelor's degree, and you graduate with four promissory notes that are held by the federal government. 
um, for most people, your your loan is either subsidized or unsubsidized, which which just means either do or don't pay interest while you're in school. But then, regardless, once once it's time to start paying, because they're supposed to be aid, they're really uh, favorable terms with very very flexible repayment options. Um, but what what has sort of happened in the the sixty years since the student loan process initiated is the system has kind of gotten out of control for for a variety of different reasons. Um, the when I was thinking about it, kind of the the first one that I that I saw was it makes essentially unlimited capital available to the like least qualified borrowers in the history of banking. If if somebody came into my office, and I can I can tell you're you're skeptical about what I'm saying, but if somebody somebody came to my office and said, I want to loan a hundred thousand dollars to this 18-year-old who has no assets, has no job, and doesn't plan on working for four years. I, I would tell you that you're crazy and I will gladly take your money to put together the paperwork, but don't come crying to me when you don't get repaid. Um, the student loans are, um, they're given to very low, low quality borrowers or subprime borrowers and they have favorable interest rates and they're not secured. And so if you're going to loan money to somebody, there's there's a variety of different things that you can do to protect yourself. You can take collateral, uh, you can have a cosigner, or you can charge an exorbitantly high interest rate. For student loans, they're all unsecured. The, the borrower generally doesn't have any collateral for one, and for two, uh, the federal government doesn't ask for it. Second, the interest rates are generally very favorable. They're way less than you would normally pay through a, a bank. And third, for the vast majority of student loans, you don't have to have a parent co-sign them. And so the the risk is substantial for the federal government. If, if they were a banking institution, they would be really scared of this type of debt. But what, what the system has created is totally, completely inelastic demand. There's unlimited capital available, so the schools can charge whatever they want. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Matthew Wersner about the history of student loan forgiveness and its current legal challenges, including by the state of Nebraska. What do you think? Will, as Don Bacon worries, the military take a huge hit if it can no longer recruit young people struggling to pay for higher education? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. What's worth maybe mentioning in there is since it's a government program and it's not a bank, the federal government is not doing this to make a profit off of it necessarily. In theory, you know, there's there's interest that's charged and so they are making money and at at the scale of the student loan system, if you've got a trillion dollars of outstanding loans and they're all at a 6% interest rate paid over 20 years, you're going to make money on that. Right. But like the federal government does not exist to make a profit. Right. The, I don't think the point of the system is to make a profit for the federal government. It, it, it has 
an incidental profit that it does make, but ultimately the point of the Higher Education Act, the point of the FAFSA is aid. Yeah. It's not a loan that's given so that the government can profit off of the student. Unlike some institutions, some universities who do exist for profit. Exactly. And school has become big business in part because the student loan system has enabled them to do so. And so I, and I don't want to bore you with numbers because numbers are boring, but I, I did a little bit of math and I did a little bit, little bit of sleuthing on this. And the average cost of a bachelor's degree from 1990 to 2022 has gone up 180%. But the median household income during that time has only gone up 116%. So I know you just said you don't want to do the numbers, but what, what, like how much did it cost <laughs> to get a bachelor's degree? So in 2022, for in-state public uh, bachelor's degree, so the cheapest thing you could possibly get all in with tuition, books, fees, and everything. The number that I found was approximately $25,000 a year. If it's a four-year degree, that's hundred grand. And that's not including living expenses? That, that would that include, is? Okay. yes. Um, but that, that number is deceptive because um, the day you graduate, you don't then hand the government a check for hundred grand and say, thank you for loaning me the money you repay that at an interest rate over 20 or 30 years or the rest of your life. And so just, just to keep it simple, at the standard repayment plan over 20 years at the market rates today, that 100000 actually costs you 200000 And so in, in my world, the actual cost of the bachelor's degree is $200,000. In 1990, that same cost was um, not not $100,000 for the education. It was $33,000 for the whole education. That's for all the years, all four. Yes. And then um, the interest rates back then were very comparable to today. And so I just kept the numbers the same. Over that same 20-year repayment period, the total cost is $56,000. And so we're looking at a difference in 30 years of 56000 up to $200,000 to get the exact same piece of paper in a job market that is increasingly requiring that piece of paper for lower and lower skilled positions. And so the student is in a really unequal bargaining position when they, they first go to school because they don't have access to the money. And in the marketplace as a new graduate they're you know unless they graduate number one in their class with with you know the top degree from harvard they don't really have the ability to command super high salaries and as a person with no experience it's hard to negotiate for a higher salary anyway and when the average person is making only slightly more than they were in 1990 the people that are losing are the students. And I, I don't think this is a shocking proposition. I don't think there's a lot of people out there who think the system works, the system is is great. We've never had an episode of this show where that's that was the takeaway. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I to offer a solution, which I don't ever do, 
I, I think the way to slow some of the unbelievable inflation in, in college prices is to make the schools have more skin in the game. How would you do that? I, I think that there might need to be some kind of legislation on what, the, what uh, a limit on the cost of education could be or offering, and I, I, I hate to suggest this because I know you won't like it, but the, the state of Nebraska through the University of Nebraska system has offered a lot of um, lower cost tuition opportunities for low-income families. And I, I think, you know, if you're, if you're a Koch family or a Walton family, yeah, you should pay full price for school. But if your mom is a, is a school teacher and your dad is a janitor, should you have to pay full price for school? I don't know. Probably not, I guess. But I, I think the, the legislatures around the country all have to agree this is a problem and put some restrictions in place to prevent the, the schools from continuing the out-of-control cost inflation. Or if not, you know, at the end of the day, if the borrower doesn't repay the loan, the only person that loses out in this arrangement is the federal government. The, the students got their degree, they got the money, the, um, the school got their, their money, the federal government's the only one that doesn't get paid. If there was a way to make um, the school jointly liable for that debt, uh, that might help. Is that a great idea? No. Well, so I guess as far as when this was all established, was it done through legislation that passed through Congress or was it done through the Department of Education? The Higher Education Act, that's a congressional law. That's a, it's a series of statutes. The, it's not something that came from the Department of Education, which makes rules under the Administrative Procedure Act. And so to Broadly speaking, to change the system, that's something that has to happen through an act of Congress. Um, the Department of Education has the authority through the Administrative Procedure Act to execute the laws that are in place and has the authority to issue rules and regulations interpreting those laws um, but ultimately, if the Department of Education wanted to try to fix the problem and say, okay, college is too expensive, we're going to put a cap on how much you're allowed to charge as an institution, um, that probably exceeds the scope of their authority under, under the law. Well, that's, that's part of what the big legal debate is right now of what exactly is their authority and what isn't it. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the big thing that's happening lately is – the president canceling a portion of student loans or not um, not collecting on payments during the, the freeze, those are two different things that, that come from two different places legally, but you know those are not those are not the solution. They're a short-term fix. Uh, but there's there's an interesting there's an interesting point from me as the lawyer with student loan cancellation. So you go to school for four years, you graduate with four separate student loans, and each one of them is, it's a separate and distinct, unique legal document. And if it's a straight $25,000 a year, you've got four loans that say, I will pay the government $25,000 times four. If, if President Biden cancels 
um, a student loan, what, what does that mean for those four documents? If, if somebody came to my office and said, I lent my neighbor $100, we signed a promissory note, I don't want, it, I don't want to get paid any, on it anymore, I would have them sign something um, releasing the borrower from the note or a cancellation of the promissory note. If, if somebody came into my office and said, I lent my neighbor $25,000 and we've talked and I now only want to collect $15,000, that requires a modification to the promissory note or an addendum to the promissory note. Uh, and a lot of contracts, almost every contract I've ever seen in the world will have a provision in it that says this can't be modified um, unless it's signed in writing by both parties. And, and so a, a curiosity that I have is if you have four $25,000 student loans and, and President Biden has said, I will cancel $10,000 of that debt, which $25,000 loan does that come off of for one? For two, is that a legal modification of the loan? Who's going to complain? Is that part of what was uh, I, in the, the form that goes out? Is, is there authority granted in your initial request for uh, to be qualified for it maybe? Uh, you know, I, I didn't think well, – you know, I make no qualms about the fact I submitted my application <laughs> to get $10,000 taken off. I didn't look at it closely enough. But I suspect as part of that, you're agreeing to a modification of all of your loans in some way, shape, or form. Um, and so I don't, I don't think that's really a real issue. But what it, what it confirms for me is a suspicion that I had that this directive by the president is not, it's not a plan or a program, a big scale thing. Um, it's. 30 million individual loan modifications or or multiplied by four, it's 120 million individual loan modifications, 120 million promissory note cancellations. And so without getting into any of the specifics on any of the lawsuits, I have a hard time with a challenge to the plan because the plan is built up of literally 100 plus million individual promissory notes that all have separate and distinct actions on them. And there's some commonality between those actions, but I don't know that it's fair or correct or right for a court to lump all of those things together. And so I, I think on all of these challenges, there's there's a philosophical problem to the challenge because I just don't know that a court in the District of Missouri really has the right to do or say anything in regards to one of three promissory notes that a borrower in California has with the federal government. Well, let's let's take a step back and then we'll get to the current uh, challenges and all of that. But first of all, it's not like forgiveness is brand new. There's been a lot of loans that have been forgiven over the past 15 years, right? Oh, I didn't see any Republicans complaining about their forgivable PPP loans. Well, there's that, but then also uh, in the case of fraudulent schools, right? A lot of those have been forgiven. <laughs> sure. And there's just like there's been targeted relief, and that's that's not really that's not new. And, um, and what's interesting about something like that is if if somebody defrauded me, my remedy is 
to go to court and file a lawsuit and you know nine times out of ten the person that did the fraud doesn't have the money to pay you back and you don't ultimately get made whole student loans are such a unique beast that with a, a magic wand the government can say oh all is forgiven don't no worries you, you you're free you can walk away from this and that's just not something that's afforded to the average person with the average problem um, but there there isn't there is an interesting thing that has has come out of this that I don't know I, I had thought about this a long time ago and I thought I was a real nerd for thinking of it and I'm glad that other people have, have caught on to this if if I loan you a hundred thousand dollars and I give you a hundred thousand dollars of cash and then the next year I say you know what I don't want the money back I'm supposed to give you a 1099 and you're supposed to report a hundred thousand dollars of income on your income taxes because the, the Internal Revenue Code says that that's ordinary, ordinary income, you got to pay tax on it. Um, the student loans um, have an exemption under the CARES Act, the HEROES Act, one of the more recent things that, that happened during the pandemic that says cancellation of student loans does not qualify as income for federal income tax purposes. And so, again, there's another remedy or, or favorable, area of favorable treatment that's available to student loan borrowers that the average person doesn't have access to and, and wouldn't get. You know, if, if, if the federal government got a 1099 from me and you showed up and said, I don't want to pay this, the Internal Revenue Service is going to say, well, that's too bad. You got to pay taxes on that. Um, that's a public policy decision because the system is broken. But um, there's a, there, my point is there's a lot of moving parts to this and there's a lot of different avenues in which the government can provide relief to borrowers. Well, so there, my part where I was going with this before is there was not a lot of outcry when the Department of Education or the Secretary of Education says, we're going to go after students who have been defrauded by a school that maybe doesn't even exist anymore and we're going to forgive those loans, right? That did not cause a huge... Uh, legal fervor. Not, not that I've seen. And there's been, I, I had kind of thought that these, I, I think President Biden has been the most active in that area uh, in trying to forgive loans for people that maybe were unfair, especially because their school lost its accreditation, fraud, whatever. Um, I think a lot of those things were done sort of as test cases by the Biden administration to test the limits of what they could do and practice and work out their arguments so that when they got to the big thing, the, the blanket cancellation, they were a lot more ready for it. But yeah, I, I don't know that. I didn't hear any complaints. The people that went to Trump University or or Kanye West School. I was going to bring up the Kanye Academy. Yeah, I yeah. went to Donda Academy. If they get their money back, I don't know that a lot of people are going to be mad about that. Well, no, another thing that happened was Donald Trump paused the payments over the course of the pandemic. And the payments are still paused to this day because Biden has continued to push it back, push it back, push it back. So I don't remember a ton of outcry about that either. No, and that's there's a lot of politics underlying that. But that's different than student loan cancellation from a legality standpoint in my mind. Okay, why? The executive branch, the president, his 
or her job is to enforce the laws that are on the books. And he or she has the discretion to not enforce the law. They don't want to. Um, payments on student loans, if the, the promissory note says, I agree to pay you federal government, and the president says, no, you don't have to pay yet, he hasn't forgiven the loan. He hasn't canceled the loan. He's just chosen to not enforce the rights that the government would have um, to go after the borrower for not paying. And so I think that's different from a legal standpoint than him saying, we will never, ever come after this. I'm tearing up your promissory note. So and, in that sense, then, anybody who is president can just say, when I'm president, you don't have to make a single payment. I I think so. You know, taking it to the extreme makes me makes me a little nervous, but the way that I'm rationalizing it in my mind, I think the federal government could say, okay, we're, you know, I, Hillary Clinton, 47th president hereby declare, uh, we will not try to recover any more student loans. You still owe it if you want to pay it. Thank you. We really appreciate that. But if you don't pay it, we're not going to go after you. For, for as it. long as I'm president. <laughs> yes. Right? Like okay, That seems like a thing that will manifest, right? I don't know that uh, we will really have a president that's going to come in and say, you know, gosh darn it, everybody needs to start paying. Right. I don't think that's likely. And I, I in the back of my mind, I really don't think we're ever going to have to pay our loans again. <laughs> Certainly not pay them in full. Um and I, I, I really understand the argument of people who, oh, I, I paid my loans in full. That's not fair. I, I hear that. I appreciate that. I, I acknowledge that that is a contrary argument. But hey, you're not going to get any more sympathy out of me than that. <laughs> I'm talking with Matthew Wersner about the history of student loan forgiveness and its current legal challenges, including by Nebraska. Are you worried about your student loans, or do you hate the idea that a college grad might have less to pay now? Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. We've got a lot of episodes in there, and they are in your favorite app right now. So please, if you want to listen to them, if you do listen to them, we'd love it if you'd give us a review. We need some reviews. Please give us some reviews. All right, today I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the history of student loan forgiveness and its current legal challenges, including by the state of Nebraska. Here's the rest of our conversation. Well, and, you know, Bernie Sanders, Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, they've all loudly supported a full student loan forgiveness plan across the board. Uh, you know, one where essentially there are no strings attached. It's like a, they, they frame it like it's a stimulus, essentially, for these people to now spend the money. You know, like when a bank crashes the world economy, we just give them a stimulus, no strings attached. Yeah. They do whatever they want. They're basically saying, why can't we do that for the average citizen who has loans? And I, I would think 
every state governor out there would say, absolutely, let's do it because that's $100,000 that's now not getting paid to the federal government. And, and they will get spent. It, yeah. If you, if you buy a $100,000 Tesla, you're going to owe the state of Nebraska 7 8% tax on that. And that's money that otherwise would not have ever made its way to the state of Nebraska. But herein lies some of the problems. Um, the lawsuits that have been brought up, um, the state of Nebraska has has sort of led the challenge um, or led the, led the cause in the big challenge that's going on right now. The state of Nebraska's position in that lawsuit is the pension system for government employees invests in uh, groups of student loans that are bundled together as securities. And so those student loans, if you're a big institutional investor, I guess, can be bought or traded like shares of Apple could be. And so by canceling the student loans, what the state of Nebraska has argued is we're actually going to lose potential money that our pension would have made through the interest payments that were made on the loans that uh, are a portion of the security that we purchased. I don't think that's okay or appropriate at all. It's one thing for banks in two, from 2004 to 2008 to bundle together, together some prime mortgages and then sell those to institutional investors. It's another thing to take people's student loan debt and to sell that to investors. I, th those are different things. I don't like either of them, but I like even less the federal government's loans being something that's bought or sold or traded by uh, dudes in invests on Wall Street. Yeah. So has that always been the system or do you know when that started? I did not know that was a thing until I read the lawsuit that was brought by the state of Nebraska. And as an investment would go, a, a 6% interest rate loan, that might actually be a pretty darn good loan. But... Um, Student loans have some spectacularly high default rates, and so I don't know that I would yes. buy into something like well, that. Well, it could be the new big short, I guess, Yeah, betting against it. And in some ways, I think that's what could be created and maybe has been created. Um, I've never heard of this as being a thing before, so maybe it's not a huge large-scale problem, um, and I didn't research it really heavily, and I didn't try to buy a student loan debt uh, obligation. Not yet. No, not yet. I don't know if I log into a TD Ameritrade account if I can put one into my IRA. But the state of Nebraska are, made this point that we're going to lose money if this debt cancellation goes away. Other states have argued we're going to lose uh, we're going to lose tax revenue by uh, student loans getting canceled. I don't understand that argument. At all, I are guess. these all, are these all bundled as one lawsuit at this point? Yeah. So the the big one is it's a collection of six states: uh, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. And I notice a trend. <laughs> yes, me too. And Nebraska is is first on the list. They're the big one, uh, sort of making the push on it. But all of those six states are are bringing different things to the table. Um, so Nebraska's argument is what I just said, 
But Missouri and Arkansas, theirs is really interesting. They are saying that they have um, student loan servicers that are agencies of their government that are potentially losing money by this cancellation. Um, That's a really, really, really good point. And so I, I have to explain some legal stuff. So, so okay, all right. Stay I'll with go me. to sleep for a little stay bit. Stay with Wake me. me up when you're done. Um, when you sue somebody, you have to have standing. And, and standing is two different things. Standing is you're the correct party to sue and you have an actual legal interest. So the correct party to sue comes up in a lot of lawsuits where somebody owns an LLC, you know, a small business owner. And if, you know, if somebody calls me and says, I want a promissory note, I do the legal work, and then they don't pay me, if I file the lawsuit against them, I lose. I don't have standing because those legal fees um, are payable to my law firm. And so that lawsuit would be my law firm versus the person that didn't pay me. Um, that's the correct party in interest. The, the second issue is you actually have to have a legal interest in the dispute in question. Um, so imagine you go to Nebraska Furniture Mart to buy a television, and Nebraska Furniture Mart says it's it's an expensive television, it's many thousands of dollars, and you don't have the money to pay it, and so you have a credit application, and Nebraska Furniture Mart loans you the money. Two years down the road, you don't pay Nebraska Furniture, <laughs> Nebraska Furniture Mart, and this happens, and you know it's unfortunate. But <laughs> you call Nebraska Furniture Mart and you say, "Yeah, I can't pay. This is this is so sad. So many bad things have happened to me." And they say, "Okay, we won't we won't collect that debt." Um, if if a third party, some other person, shows up and says. I've been monitoring this on the court system. This isn't fair. Um, and they sue Nebraska Furniture Mart for not collecting that debt. They don't. That third party doesn't have an interest in that contract between Nebraska Furniture Mart and the borrower. And so they don't have standing to bring this particular lawsuit. And so here's, here's where the problem in all of these different lawsuits um, and, and the big lawsuit for the states have come in. I don't think any of the states have um, sufficiently alleged that they have standing. And this is why the, the lawsuit got dismissed, and this is why it's on appeal. The state of Nebraska um, saying, oh, our, our pension plan is going to lose money, that's really f- very far attenuated from the average borrower in California who borrowed money from the federal government. Um, they don't really have a legal interest in the dispute. The servicers um, in Missouri and Arkansas, they have standing, in my opinion. Um, but the, those agencies of the Missouri and Arkansas government are separate and distinct legal entities which can sue or be sued under their own name. <laughs> and the states are who's listed as the party. So the wrong party is suing, and so it's like me suing my client and not my LL, my uh, 
my law firm, my LLP well, suing. And wouldn't wouldn't the solution here be that they deserve some degree of compensation, not necessarily to the extent of stopping forgiveness in all 50 states? And yes, but here's the secondary problem. Once you get past the hurdle of saying, I have standing to sue, you have to prove that you have damages. And I think proving that you have damages would be really, really, really difficult. Um, student loans haven't been paid by most borrowers for two years. Even then, they already had really high default rates. So how could you convince a judge or a jury that um, of the 10 million student loans that your state agency services um, where you would have received 0.375% on each one of them that you're ultimately losing out on $80 million of, of revenue. H how do you prove that when we're so far removed from the last time that most people made payments and a large portion of people already weren't making payments to begin with? I think that's a really challenging case, but I think that's the only potentially winning case that's out there. Well, and also, I mean, $10,000, I don't know what the average uh, the average borrower has in debt. I know that it cuts a, it cuts into a lot of it, right? But there are many people who have way more than ten dollars or $20,000. Oh, yeah. So absolutely. it's not like this kills all revenue either. No, absolutely. But, you know, I'm less sympathetic to the states. I'm more sympathetic to the servicers like Great Lakes or Navient or whoever where, you know, they employ – large numbers of, of people. Yeah, I guess the states of Missouri and Arkansas do as well. But um, the, the, the problem is, I think you maybe could calculate if you were a really good bean counter, if 30 million loans were all reduced by $10,000 and each servicer was going to receive X many pennies on the dollar, therefore we've shorted all of these agencies X. Um, I think maybe you could do that. There'd probably be a lot of room for debate among accountants about what the the correct rate would be. But then ultimately, to make those people whole, the federal government could make a payment to the servicers and make a payment to um, the states for the that lost revenue that they would have had. But again, there's no guarantee they ever would have been paid to begin with. If every single borrower in the entire country refused and never made a payment again, those individual servicers um, are not going to get any money. Yeah. And so it, it's it's a challenge for me to say making those those servicers whole is a good idea because I it's it's too difficult to prove what they've actually lost. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Matthew Worsner about the history of student loan forgiveness and its current legal challenges. What do you want to see happen with federal student loans? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. So the the first round, they got dismissed. That was the outcome? Yeah, they, they lost on standing grounds. And I wish we had had this interview weeks ago because I had these very lofty predictions about what would happen. And I, I will tell you that I was correct, but you know, it's, that's only my word saying that. <laughs> well, give us some predictions for the future. We'll see if I, you're right. So the, they're up on appeal now before the, the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. 
Um, that's a crapshoot, you know, because it's the the Eighth Circuit is a traditionally very uh, right leaning group because it encompasses a lot of red states, and red states are mostly not in favor of this. But I think ultimately, the the claims by the state of Nebraska, the claims by Iowa, and everybody who's not Missouri and Arkansas, I think those ultimately doesn't matter when they bring the lawsuit. I, I think those ultimately all lose. Um, the servicers, the, the Missouri and Arkansas, who who had agencies that might be able to show an actual real loss, they're going to lose because the wrong party sued. But they could refile their lawsuit or they could amend their lawsuit to have the correct party suing. I, I think they have a chance. That's okay. You're saying if Naviant or whatever sues, they could potentially stop the entire forgiveness plan or the, the, the forgiveness from happening? I don't think the remedy that they could ultimately get is stopping it. I think what they would be able to do is um, sue Navient or Great Lakes could sue the federal government for um, a taking, for an eminent domain, an, an unconstitutional taking where – their contract rights to get paid on all of these uh, promissory notes have been diminished, and um, they're owed compensation from the federal government. Do they have the right or the ability to stop it? I think the answer is no. The other question I have then is, say it gets to the Supreme Court or whatever court we need to, uh, that takes a long time, right, to go through that whole process? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's a way to make it go faster, but realistically you got to go through the eighth circuit if the eighth circuit says yes you have standing and now this goes back down to the district court to be a regular old lawsuit um it's 18 months two years before this this gets heard by the supreme court if if the eighth circuit says no you don't have standing it's probably sooner that that they're called up before the supreme court and sooner get a decision looking like months oh yeah now. it's still months okay. it's not this year i don't think and i don't know exactly what biden's timeline is but it sounds like he wants to do this within the next year right yeah i i, I think it's a little up in the air um i'm curious to see those people who have already had their loan uh modification applications put in I think those people, those might be able to go through. Um, and I think if the president or whoever approves all of those, once you've lowered the principal balance on those notes, I don't think you can raise them. That was my next question. Can Clarence Thomas ask <laughs> me for $10,000? No. And I to back to what I had said before, it, it takes two people to modify the promissory note. If they've agreed to lower it, I think they both have to agree to raise it. And so it would require a judge saying 120 million individual promissory notes were unlawfully lowered, therefore they all need to be raised again. I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think that's really unlikely. And, and maybe I'm just framing the issue incorrectly. I, you know, I don't think that this is the kind of thing that can or should be looked at as a large-scale thing. I think... When you've got so many different things with so many different variables, 
uh, so many different borrowers and notes, this has to be viewed on the small scale. And I, I fail to see how anybody could really get the remedy that they want if that remedy is stop it from happening. And once it has happened, I think it's almost impossible to undo it. So I would say it's all a waste of time. But I think a lot of what happens in politics is a waste of time in terms of outcome, maybe not so much in terms of image and what you can run on and what the media cycle can do with it, right? Right. And I think the, I think the lawsuits by the states, I don't I, – I, they're lawyers. They know they don't have standing. Um, the attorneys general for all the different states, I, I did not just teach them about this. <laughs> Um, they know they're going to lose. The, I think this is just a delay tactic to wait until um, two years from now when a different president is in office and maybe they get a different result that they want. But I, I have a hard time believing that the attorney general of Missouri or Arkansas could look at me with a straight face and say, oh, yeah, we have standing even though – the, the wrong party sued someone. I, that's that's a law school one hundred and one thing. I, I think it's it's a delay tactic. Yeah. Well. Okay. So to kind of tie it back to where we started, the big criticism you have of all this is forgiving ten thousand or twenty thousand if you're a Pell Grant uh, recipient. It doesn't necessarily stop the fact that tuition and how much money is being charged, and that there's an unlimited pool of money from the federal government that goes to these schools. That issue is not really solved, even though there's relief for a lot of people along the way. Right. And it, I think that's where the solution needs to be because that is the problem. The cost is the problem. And the solution needs to be one as well that doesn't take access away to a college education for low-income people or people who, who wouldn't otherwise be able to go. You know, for a, an affluent person... Yeah, you might not have the cash, but if mommy or daddy co-signed the loan and you put up mommy or daddy's house as collateral, Wells Fargo might give you the loan. But for a low-income person whose parents don't have assets, it's not fair that they lose out on the ability to go to college altogether. And so I, I think the solution is not in reducing the aid, it's in reducing the cost. And that's... I think that ultimately stems from uh, college turning into big business, which it maybe shouldn't be. How do we fix that? That's, that's for Congress to decide. How is Congress going to get 60 votes to do anything about it? That would be the next question? I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the bigger, if we zoom out, issue, which is uh, Congress is so gridlocked for anything that can't be put in a reconciliation bill or in terms of like a judge that gets uh, you know appointed that – People don't really look to Congress for solutions now. They look right. outside the box. What can the president right. do now? Because I guess Congress will never do anything ever again. And what that has created is the last two presidents have done things that I, I think are sort of blatantly unconstitutional and unlawful, but they get away with it because who's going to stop them? If Congress is so ineffectual, um, what? where's the sign that says you can't do something? And if if there's not a no parking sign and Joe Biden wants to park there, fine. But if there's a no parking sign there and Joe Biden parks there and nobody is willing to do anything about it, 
there may as well not be a sign there. Well, then it's even worse than that because it's he parks there and half the people in the parking lot say, yeah, he can park there. And the other half say, no, he can't. Yeah. And then, you know, I don't know where you go from there. Yeah. Well, and what I what I I think is really interesting about this is gun to my head. I don't think the president has the authority to cancel student loans. And I don't think the Department of Education has the authority to cancel student loans. But ultimately, I think the way the system is laid out, nobody has the right, the legal right to complain about it. And so if if president whoever did it, okay, yes, it's illegal, but but since nobody can complain about it, well, it happened. Sorry. Right. I don't know what authority really means in no, some of this context. It, it means nothing, you know, and if this is what <laughs> – being the president has come down to that you can do whatever you want with any real ramifications or repercussions, that scares me a little bit. But I guess I think that's a topic for a different day, maybe. <laughs> Next time on Riverside Chats. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Uh, okay, do you have any okay. last last predictions? Want to throw one more thing out there? Uh, no. And I try try as I might. I could not find anything about debt cancellation after the Civil War. Oh, there I'm we go. I'm so disappointed. All right. Well, at least you said the words yeah, Civil War. I, I guess that counts, right? So, all right. Well, thanks for coming back on the show yeah, and teaching me you. some things. Riverside Chats is a production of KOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Please subscribe, and while you're there, we'd love a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.